Hello, everybody, and thanks for joining us again here on The Edge. Brought to you by our good friends at KeelGuard. Guard your boat against grinding sand, abrasive rocks, and concrete boat ramps with Keel Guard Keel Protector. I'm Steve Brigman, and I'm here with my good friend Aaron Martin. So what's up, Aaron? Well, Steve, I'm going to steal one out of the playbook of Tim Tebow. I am excited. You know, we have two recent champions on the same body of water that fished the exact same days, but different parts. So uh, we're going to get to see how they broke that down. And I'm talking about none other than Scott Martin and Brian Maloney, the All-American champion. Well, I understand you've been out on the water quite a bit yourself lately, and I'm anxious to hear about that. So let's just get on with another episode. I don't know of any other sport that offers a challenge in bass fishing. Yet. That's full contact fishing right Man. there. Conditions going to be tough, but we'll catch them. This is, a, this is a good place. It's all about figuring it out. What do you think of that, huh? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Gosh. oh did you see that? Yes, I saw that. That was awesome. <laughs> Holy cow. You're listening to The Edge, everything bass fishing from the Bass Edge Studios, high above Table Rock Lake in the Missouri Ozarks. Well, Aaron, I know we're shifting into that time of year that you really enjoy the most. I know you're kind of a deep water guy, and I also know you've been out a lot. So what's been going on out there on the water? I have been fortunate, Steve, to kind of get out a lot. I had a, a recent tournament of which just between you and I, i got to kind of share a story with you where I had a brain lapse. You know, we talk a lot about being in the moment. Of course, I'm excited trying to get uh, got my stuff done in the office for the day, so I'm rushing around. And normally, you know me, I'm a routine person, go through everything and do it in a certain order. Well, for some reason, I forgot to trim my motor up before uh, pulling it out of the garage and of course I have a pretty steep incline right when you leave the garage and needless to say I took a nice big chunk out of my concrete with my skeg but the fortunate thing is I had the uh you know, my skate guard on there from uh, keel guard, so all's well and uh, was able to hit the boat ramp shortly thereafter. Yeah, I know. I have trouble walking up that hill. <laughs> <laughs> Much less getting up, but uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff to remember, and, and, and thank goodness you you know, you had the protection on there. But anyway, I know you've had a little success on the water lately, and in particular I think I read or heard somewhere where you weighed in a big old smallmouth down there at Table Rock. I did. I was fortunate uh, Central Pro-Am, kind of a region circuit here uh, in the Midwest and you know the funny thing is Steve in practice I had limited practice time went out we had 30 mile an hour winds you know the wind has blown here non-stop which is I think very uncharacteristic you know if we were in Texas I could understand that but uh, anyway the other condition that was going on with the lake itself was because of the early what I would consider now early summer it's not even really early spring anymore but the early summer water warming up uh, it brought that algae bloom on, and also we had a little bit of a turnover, which meant it really changed the clarity of the water from its normal, you know, gin clear, you know, being able to see five, six feet to a kind of a coffee, you know, tannic color, brownish. And with it being post-spawn, there was still some that was on the bed at that point in time, talking about the middle of May, not too long ago. And, you know, I just basically hit the banks with a big square bill, and that seemed to be what was producing. You know, you had to cover a tremendous amount of water just to try and put 12 to 13 pounds in the boat well so you know i was prepared come tournament day that's what i was doing the first stop i looked out put one in the boat right off the bat but then went an hour and a half and there was no wind on tournament day so you know obviously that changes the situation went up to my primary area and uh the water had cleared up. I mean, it was amazing. In 24 hours, what that water had done. And and I knew that with no wind, just crystal clear water, very calm, 
I'm like, this crankbait is not going to cut it. Reached in my box, found my swim baits that I normally throw this time of year in the trees, and I only had five. First cast, cast it to a uh, cedar tree and, and hooked a, a five, almost five and a half pound smallmouth. And in 17 minutes, Steve, basically put a limit in the boat. So it's just amazing, you know, when you're open-minded and, and kind of get stuck into the rut of how things can change so quickly. You're right about one thing. It's, it's, it's a really early year, weird example of summer coming on. But I'd like to hear you talk about how fishing changes. You know, here we are in the early summer, but talk to us about how that progresses throughout the summer month and how that changes on into the summer. Well, you know, you and I talk a lot about it. And, and when we speak about seasonal conditions, use the the winter season, let's say, as kind of your benchmark or, or, or as your starting line. You know, it's, it's kind of a deep, shallow, back to deep, and then back to shallow. So I really see that, you know, the spring, they moved in shallow, obviously, because you have the spawn that's going on. So uh, kind of their natural tendencies take over. They move back in to the shallows. And then once they spawn, you know, they're going to stage in a lot of those uh, areas post-spawn that they did for the pre-spawn. They're going to hang out there, probably be suspended, relating to some sort of cover, your deep water access to where they can move off as those uh, drastic weather changes, those fronts move through. They're going to be able to move up and down in that water column. And then we all know that bass love stability. So once you start seeing where the water level is not fluctuating based upon you know historically uh, spring rains messing with the water level a little bit and you have that temperature that's basically on the rise going into summer you know a lot of those bass will move out into their summer hunts i really see that you're going to be focused on uh, during the day at least uh, kind of a, a deeper bite you know whether those fish are suspended off the ledges like we see at kentucky lake or, uh, you know, talking specifically about table rock, uh, you know, I'm going to concentrate on the tree rows. If I have docks, they're going to be using that. Uh, that shaded water is going to be more comfortable, going to be cooler. It's going to have more oxygen in it. And then certainly in the vegetation, you know, they're going to be hanging around that very healthy vegetation where they can burrow up in that. It's producing oxygen. And of course, then you've got, you know, your bait fish that's moving up into that to feed on the microorganisms that grow there. So the bass are going to follow those. But it really comes back to just, you know, the comfort, the security, and, um, you know, just being able to find that, that food source. So that's really what I'm looking for. And, uh, you know, like I said, that's that's during the daytime. But, uh, you know, Steve, you tend to have a little darker side to you and kind of a darker approach. So uh, when it comes to fishing summer, you and I differ a little bit in that area. Well, we do. Yeah, You know, of course, growing up in Texas, uh, you know, one of my favorite things to do was, was to fish at night. And, of course, primarily it's not so daggum hot and yeah. you don't have the crowd. So you had the lake to yourself but uh you know we found that uh, we call some enormous fish at night and of course when you talk to guys that fish at night they're going to tell you mostly well you kind of catch them at night the same way you do during the day but one thing i found is that there there were definitely on my old lake lake fork there were definitely night spots and day spots they weren't dissimilar in what they were and it's my belief that some fish grow old and get big because they've developed the habit of feeding at night and i think these night spots and day spots are not fish moving around i think they're different fish and of course a couple of those favorite spots were like long points with long vegetative underwater points 
that they would move up on after dark and fish. And uh, I like it. I like being out there alone. I like being out there when it's not so hot. But, you know, there's a lot of precautions to take. You know, you probably can't buy gas or food or, or uh, get somebody to tow you in if you don't have a, you know, if you run out of gas. So it's really important on those night fishing trips to take all those precautions. Boy, that is for sure. And, you know, speaking of night fishing, it kind of uh, is, is a throwback for me because really that's actually how I was introduced to the sport of bass fishing. Uh, started way back in the in the 80s as far as i and i'm talking on bigger tributaries versus just the smaller rivers or, or farm ponds you know we would go out crappie fishing in the daytime and then start bass fishing at night and then certainly as my life changed and you know you get out you get a job uh, some of these lakes like lake of the ozarks for instance you know when it comes summertime i mean there's just way too many big boats out there to to have an enjoyable at least for me and then also with the heat you know so i was forced to basically learn to go out and fish at night but i can tell you there is a a drastic difference between fishing at night and fishing in the daytime but uh i'm much like you you know i loved getting out of that heat and was able to be able to to go out in those months of july and august and into the dog days and kind of avoid that and at least not have that that sun you know beating down on you and and for once uh, not have to you know take a bath in sunscreen before i i hit the water every day but you know speaking of heat i tell you somebody that is hot right now and that is scott martin and it looks like steve that he is on the line and uh let's go see what scott has to say and see how he was able to put together a back-to-back wire-to-wire victory on the Potomac. Sounds good. You know the importance of protecting your investments, so why use anything other than the toughest keel protector for your boat? Grinding sand, abrasive rocks, and concrete ramps are no match for our patented technology. KeelGuard keel protectors are made tough and made to stick. Their do-it-yourself installation takes less than an hour, providing the most dependable, most trusted keel protection for your boat, guaranteed for life. So give your boat the performance edge. Put on the protection the pros pick. KeelGuard keel protectors. Hey, Edge listeners, this is Terry Backsay. Hi, I'm Jamie Cyphers. I'm Denny Brower. This is Michael Murphy. I'm Randy Howell. Hey, this is Kevin Van Dam, and you're listening to The Edge. One of the sport's most consistent and decorated anglers, as well as recent winner of the FLW Tour on the Potomac River, please welcome Scott Martin. Welcome to the show, Scott. Hey, guys. How are you all doing today? Oh, we're great. Well, good. I'm just, I just got home. I've been traveling all over the place. I, I just got back to Cluston just now, just uh, last night late. and It's been quite a whirlwind since the victory. Well, Scott, I bet it has. And, you know, first off, congratulations to really go in wire to wire and be able to lead the event from start to finish. You know, that speaks volumes. But, you know, I know... It was probably a little tighter there in the end than what you would have liked, but bottom line is you still brought home the victory. It was. It was a nail-biter, I tell you. I had all the emotions in, in, in that last day. I had all the emotions you could possibly have, you know, with the emotions of, of leading the tournament, the emotions of catching a limit, the emotions of maybe thinking I won the tournament, then the emotions of maybe I came up a fish short, not going to win. All those emotions rolled into one, and then that defining moment standing there on stage when they when they called the final weight and I won by three ounces, man, what a relief that was. Oh, wow, that's what we call a good game <laughs> but uh but uh anyway you know i know when we're talking about the potomac river we're talking about a lot of different kinds of water can you just fill us in on the areas you fished and, and how you fished them sure you know the potomac river is number one a great fishery it's a it's a tidal river and it's full of a lot of a lot of grass a lot of milfoil grass and there's a lot of shoreline cover like logs and lay down bushes and stuff like that but i focused on the on the milfoil grass beds on, on the lake i'm comfortable fishing grass up here in Lake Okeechobee. 
and it's a tidal river. So what, one of the one of the factors that you have to take in consideration is where do you fish on what tides? And so what I did is I formulated a game plan to I checked the tides that week, and the tides that week were going to be high in the mornings and low in the afternoons. And so I started on my high tide spot, which was on the northern part of the river up around Belmont Bay. And uh, it was an area that had thin grass. It wasn't real thick grass. It was very thin grass, and it was a spawning area where the fish were really congregating for the last month or so. And it had all three stages. It had some fish still spawning. It had some post-spawn fish. And I think there was even a few pre-spawn fish in there milling around, too. And I focused on those areas early in the morning with uh, crankbaits, shallow run crankbaits, spinnerbaits, and even a chatterbait. Just kind of covering a lot of water and picking apart those places and finding those top spots out on that big flat. And I would do that until about 9, 10, 11 o'clock in the morning. And then when the tide started falling out a little bit lower, I would start. Then I'd run way south. I'd run about 20 miles south down to a, a quiet creek, which is a real popular area. And I'd fish the milk oil beds down there. The grass on the southern end of the lake was much thicker. Uh, down around Aquia, you could you could see the milk oil almost to the surface. It was big, thick clumps of it. And I would flip and pitch. Uh, exclusively a paddle tail worm uh, on, a, on a quarter ounce, even a three-sixteenth weight with 17-pound line. I was just pitching into the holes and pitching around the clumps of grass. When that tide would start getting low, you could really start picking out your targets better. You could see how the grass was thicker in places and thinner in others. And you could kind of anticipate where these fish would kind of funnel to as that water started to drop. And that was the key thing. As the water would drop, those fish would pull out of those grass beds and funnel to the deeper water and maybe some of those points and edges of that thick grass where they would set up and stage and feed on that low tide spot. And so I would pick pick those places apart real thoroughly with a flipping technique and a pitching technique with that paddle tail worm. And that produced, you know, about half my fish every day flipping. And then, uh, again, early in the mornings, I would, I would catch three or four or five fish, you know, good ones, uh, throwing the spinnerbaits and the chatterbaits up on the hot tide stuff. Well, Scout, you know, we've dedicated a lot of time on the show to Dr. Jay McNamara's book, The Psychology of Exceptional Fishing, and really understanding the mental aspects of bass fishing. And I found it interesting that, you know, you had cited confidence really as as your winning lure for this tournament. Can you elaborate a little bit on, on what you mean by that? Confidence is huge. It's, it's been a big part of my success over my career, and I, I believe in it uh, 100%. You know, it's way more important than the spot you're fishing, way more important than the lure you're throwing. Believing in what you do, believing in what you're doing, even if it's maybe not the best particular spot or the best particular technique on that river that particular day, believing in it will absolutely help you catch more fish and somebody on a good spot not even believing in what they're doing. And that was really the key to my success. You know, I caught some really good fish the first day of the tournament, so I had a lot of confidence from that big catch on day one. I knew that I was on good fish, and I just stayed focused and just concentrated really hard on my areas. And one of the things that I did, and I've done this twice now, I did it during the championship when I won the Cup, the Forcewood Cup, and I did it again here. Once the event got started, Aaron, I never got on Bass Fan and read the articles on how other people were catching them and maybe what areas of the lake they were concentrating on and what techniques they were employing. I focused solely on what I was doing because I wanted to believe 100% in my technique in my areas, and I didn't want to get my my confidence level clouded in any way by reading an article about David Lefebvre catching them a certain way or, or David Dudley catching them a certain way. I needed to concentrate 100% because, again, I believe confidence wins tournaments, not the baits you throw. So that was the key to my success there. I just stayed away from the Internet. I just, I just believed in what I was doing and, and, and focused as best I could. And that's a hard thing to do when you're leading a tournament, you know, because you've got all those emotions, you know, of, of, of trying to continue to lead the tournament and try to win the tournament. And uh, so you need every ounce of confidence you can get, and 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 that was that was really the key to it. Is just 
focusing, believing in what I was doing and not getting involved in Internet chatter, not getting involved in doc talk and just really put my blinders on like a racehorse. Well, so in other words, you, you didn't even want that doubt to even kind of enter into your consciousness. That's exactly right, because here's the thing about fishing. I probably make two to three thousand flips and pitches a day. Now, I don't catch two or three thousand bass. I only catch maybe 15. So all those other casts and flips and pitches that I made that I didn't get a bite on, every time you do that, you think, man, I hope I'm, I hope I'm doing the right thing. I hope I'm going to catch them. Well, if I've got confidence in that, when I'm not getting those bites, I can stay focused. I can keep deciphering the information I need to decipher, make the small adjustments I need to make to get those bites that win tournaments. Well, Scott, that is such important advice. And, and, and I'm always, you know, always taken back at how much we hear that from the top anglers, that they stay away from the dock talk and the chatter. But our listeners are always interested in how you prepare for a tournament like this. Can you just talk to us about what you did to prepare for this particular tournament? Well, number one, on a tidal river like the Potomac, you've got to really prepare on the tides because they're different every day. They, they actually fluctuate 50, about 50 minutes each day. They adjust uh, the tides. You know, this week, for example, the tides are totally different than they were last week as far as the time of day. So the number one thing I have to do is focus on figuring out the tide. Number two, I wanted to focus on two or three areas that were really good at producing a good number of fish. And, and again, you know, there's, uh, on the Potomac River, there's quite a few what you would call community holes. And, and the one thing I've learned fishing here on Lake Okeechobee is when you find fish in a grass bed, a big grass bed, I'm talking huge, there's so many more fish in there than you're actually catching that those type of fish and those type of areas can produce multiple days, weeks on end for that matter. And so I picked a couple areas that I felt like were areas that had a lot of fish, a lot of population, there were maybe a been some tournaments won in those areas in the past and i wanted to focus on those areas to get you know get the ball rolling and then i figured i'd find seven or eight or ten places kind of off the beaten path that i could run to on my little milk run of places on that low tide that i could stop and pick a fish up here and pick a fish up there and that helped that 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 contributed to probably a third of my fish i weighed in was just little five minute ten minute stops that i had along the river little grass beds and little places like that that i had decided to fish that had zero pressure at all so again and my main focus was finding a couple areas that had a good population of fish, then finding a few areas, five or six or eight areas, that I felt like I could pull up to on optimal tides and get a bite or two. Well, Scott, weekend anglers uh, like us often look to the pros like you to really help them become more consistent because I think consistency you know, has a lot to do with whether you're just out on the lake for the weekend or whether you're fishing competitively. Can you give your thoughts on what the common denominator for consistency is? It's really focus and confidence and, and believing in what you're doing. You know, it, it's formulating a plan. I saw a lot of guys out there in this tournament that were just, I felt like, randomly fishing, you know, or they camped out the entire tournament in one spot. And, and their plan consisted of just fishing one spot and hoping for the best. But I had a plan. Every time I made a move, every cast I made was a was a calculated cast, was a calculated move based on the time of the day, the tide, what the weather was doing, really focusing on those type of things. Again, focusing on a plan, setting forth a plan, you know, laying it all out. I wrote the tides down on a piece of paper every day, and I, I really visualized in my mind what I was going to do throughout the day and executed that plan. Well, here we go into June, summertime, early summer. Give us your general approach to fishing early summer. Early summer, you know, that's a fun time to fish. The fish are typically done spawning most of most places in the country. They start to really kind of pull out a little bit to the first deep water, first bit of structure, maybe out in seven, eight, nine, ten foot of water, especially on river systems. 
And uh, it's a time of the year that the fish feed heavily on shad. It's a time of the year that I fish crankbaits. I fish moving baits a lot. Early June, I, I kind of get away from my soft plastics a little bit more. I fish crankbaits, chatterbaits, spinnerbaits, big spoons, things like that, where these fish are wanting to feed up a little bit because they've spent a month or two spawning in the areas and they want to pull out. And they'll group up in, in pretty good-sized schools, you know, like Kentucky Lake, for example, we're going to next week. There's going to be huge schools of fish out on the river ledges that these fish have spawned a month ago. They're sitting out on those river ledges feeding up on every shad that comes by. And that, that's what I do. I focus on trying to find schools of fish, throwing moving baits, such as crankbaits, and, and really running the shad pattern. Scott, I know being able to travel and, and fish the FLW Tour uh, with your dad, Roland this year has been a tremendous blessing. But, you know, given his numerous accomplishments in the sport, how have you kind of chosen to deal with the pressure and, and emerge with, with your own identity and success? That's always been something real high on my list. When I started fishing, you know, 12 years ago as a professional, I wanted to do it my own way. I wanted to do it, carve my own path and and kind of and kind of do it my own way. So, you know, I, I went as far as his seeking sponsorship from other people that weren't necessarily associated with my dad just so I could do it on my own and, and, and be my own man. And then, of course, just, just getting out there and fishing, you know, and spending the time, putting the time in. You know, unfortunately, he retired, you know, about the time I started fishing professional, and uh, and we didn't get a, a chance to travel on the road, and I didn't get a chance to, to really practice together with him. And we've done that a lot this year, but what's really cool, Aaron, this year is that you know, 12 years ago, if I was practicing with him, I would be kind of following his lead. And this year, it's kind of the opposite. He's kind of following my lead. He's kind of asking me what should we do and wow. what areas should we fish. And, and that, that right there is just so awesome to see how this has really come full circle. Uh, and it's a real proud moment, I know, for myself. And I feel like it's a very proud moment for my dad. So he can sit back and say, man, I, I've taught him right. And I've done good with my son on showing him how to be a successful angler. So he's seeing some of those successes. To be able to win a tournament that he was in uh, and, and having him be part of that, man, what a special moment, you know, because yeah. for the last 11 years, I haven't, I've done it on my own. You know, I've been out, you know, winning tournaments and making top tens. And basically, I just called him on the phone and let him know how I was doing. But for him to be there and be part of it and, 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 and to see that, uh, it's just been, it's been special. These are definitely, definitely one of the sweetest victories to win that when, uh, with him around like that. It was really awesome. Well, in other words, I'm sure he's thinking job well done, you know? Yeah, it's, it's been good. He's, he's so proud and it's good to prove to my dad that I've, I can do it. You know what I mean? Yeah, that, that's neat. Well, Scott, before we let you go, I'm going to get you to help us with a listener question. Okay. And our question today is from Brian in Rayville, Louisiana. Brian writes, I like fishing in lakes. When I had a a lot of time lately, and I was using lures a lot and didn't catch anything. But my question is, what type and color lures are best during hot days in 90-degree weather, dark colors or bright-colored lures? And, again, that's Brian from Rayville, Louisiana. Well, that's a great question for Brian. You know, it, it, that's why when you walk in a tackle shop and you see 27 different colors of a worm, you know, there's <laughs> so many different things to choose from. But I like to keep it real simple. I really do. I keep it real simple. I don't base it on the temperature or the time of the year. I base it on water clarity. If I'm fishing a lake that is extremely clear, maybe a lake that has a lot of grass and it's a very clear lake with a lot of bluegill, I'm going to fish my natural colors, my green pumpkins and my watermelon seeds. 
I might even put a little chartreuse on the tail. If I'm fishing a, a river system or a lake that has dark water or stained water, I'm going to go the opposite. I'm going to throw my dark colors, my black and blues and my June bugs. So I really base my color decision more on the water clarity and the water type more so than the time of the year or even the temperature. Well, Brian, congratulations. Uh, now you can take that advice that you received from Scott and... Uh take that $25 gift card that you're going to get from Bass Tackle Depot and go out and uh, kind of apply the water clarity to your color selection. Scott, it's been great. And one thing that I would like to kind of throw in here as we wrap this up is, uh, you know, you were bold enough to make uh, kind of dedicate this win to your wife in advance of the tournament. And, uh, you know, just hats off. Not only is that admirable to do that, but then to be able to deliver. That's one of the reasons why I'll never do that is because I can't deliver on on that type of prediction. But uh, what a fantastic story. It it really, it was really uh when I said it and I told her, I said, I'm really serious. I mean, I looked in their eyes and said, I'm really, really serious. I'm going to, I want to, I want to win this one for you, you know? And, and I, when I was done and she kind of accepted the fact that I was going to try that, I, I had that hot, cold flash all at once, you know, that, oh my gosh, what, am, what if I zero, what if I double zero in the tournament? Is that going to show my love for my wife? And she's probably going to like want to leave me after that. So, you know, I, I, it was great to go out on day one and, and catch a big bag and then to, and, and then to keep that rolling. It, it was part of a lot of the pressure that I had throughout the event. Um, I've been in that position before trying to win tournaments, and but having the pressure of saying, man, I, I want to win this for my wife because of all the hard work and sacrifice she's put in with the kids for all these years, uh, it would just mean so much to me. What what better way of just showing my appreciation and love for her to, than, to, than to pull off what I said I was going to pull off before practice even started? So that, that right there is just... Uh, I'm not going to say it ever again because, uh, you know, it's like once you do something really good, you better just leave it alone. You know, like if, <laughs> yeah. you, if you do a half-court shot and do nothing but net, don't do it again. That's right. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I'm sure that check helped, too, coming home. So It does. It does. It, it always helps. You know, we, uh, we're we just, you know, got four kids, and every little bit helps. You know, we've, we've – uh, money money uh, money helps out a lot. So we'll, uh, we'll keep tipping away at it and uh, – get geared up for the next tournament well scott thank you so much for being part of the edge today uh you know and and we hope that you're able to keep rolling into uh 2012 right on through the forest wood cup well thank you guys i'm gonna like i said i'm gonna get my crankbaits all loaded up i've got my five or six cranking rods all laying here and i'm i'm getting geared up ready to go take care scott thank see you guys. scott see at legend boats we have one agenda to build the finest bass boat on the water it's our passion. Our hand-laid hulls and zero-tolerance stringer and transom system give you a smooth, dry ride, even in the rough stuff. The Alpha 211 with its massive fishing platform. The Alpha 199, fast and stable. And coming soon, the Alpha 191, a 19-footer with a style, attitude, and a price value all its own. Legend Boats, catch the wave, ride with a legend. Patented in 2000, perfected over years of testing and real-world punishment, the Powerpole is the ultimate shallow-water boat positioning tool. Swift, Powerpole deploys in seconds from anywhere in your boat. Virtually silent, Powerpole won't spook wary fish. Secure in strong currents or gusting winds in up to 8 feet of water. Engineered to take it with a lifetime unconditional replacement guarantee on the spike. Powerpole, swift, silent, secure. Visit Powerpole.com. Find a dealer near you. 
I was listening to Scott talk about fishing and vegetation there on the Potomac. I couldn't help but remember one of the, you know, the first thing I ever knew about the Potomac River was a long time ago, I saw Scott's father rolling back watching some Saturday afternoon show before there was an outdoor channel. And he was throwing buzz baits around all that vegetation. And then when the tide changed, they went out and threw some jigs on some sunken barges. Well, you know, and that's that's funny that you bring that up because I specifically remember, you know, that's one of the great things about the Potomac is just the history that goes with that. But also, it's the versatility and, and being able to do kind of, um, you know, whatever you like. But I, th- I think that holds true for a number of bodies of water, Steve. You know, I think too often we get so narrowed or focused into, and, you know, when I heard Scott say that he just really stuck to his plan stayed away from the dock talk because he knew what he was doing was work so wh- why go back to all those uh you know what's supposedly supposed to be working that time of year just follow well, that's what exactly doing. what kvd told us earlier absolutely absolutely and uh, you know you and i've seen it uh seen it too many times and the beauty of of kind of this episode is that we're going to be able to not only have we heard scott's kind of version of of where they fished and how he broke it down but we also have brian maloney that you know that'll be coming up a little bit later and we'll get to hear his version you know and i already know that they were doing something totally different well yeah i understand just they had to fish on different parts of the river and uh, looking forward to that looking forward to one of our hearing from one of our ozark guys but before that we've got a reader question and i'm pretty sure this was directed at you aaron so let's get you to respond to it and this is sam in salisbury north carolina he writes when using a fishing journal it said diary, but I had to change that. No, I'm just playing. That's what I was going to ask you. For the record, you know, <laughs> did it say diary and did you change it? No, he said journal. But uh, Sam said, when using a fishing journal, what information do you put in an entry? And how would you use the information a couple of years later? Obviously, body of water, date, water temp, clarity, weather are some of the things you'd put in there. But what about fish on locations on the legs? And then he also makes uh, says something very nice. He said, thanks for all the hard work and sharing with us. Your show is great. I do a lot of driving, and your podcast keep me from being bored to tears. And that's Sam from Salisbury, North Carolina. Well, Sam, thank you so much for sending in your questions and also uh, the kind words. And for uh, your question being chosen, you're actually going to receive a brand-new a copy of the Bass Edge 3 DVD. A uh, very good question because I think a lot of times this comes up and it's like, okay, I have this journal, but now what information should I put into it? And then how do I use that? You know, again, you brought up some of the highlights, uh, water date, uh, temperature, you know, that type of thing. I also go into obviously label the body of water that I'm fishing because of, of traveling and fishing so many different bodies of water. Uh, sky conditions, uh, that's another thing. But then also, uh, just in the top uh, part of it, I'll write the moon phase. And then as you actually come down into where you're going to keep the bulk of your information, uh, I'll go from left to right across the, the, the page. I'll start with the time of the catch, the length 
the lure and then I'll also create a column and this is all just very informal just a handwritten across this notebook a waypoint and the reason for that is the time of catch as I am out whether it be practicing or just uh, for a tournament or just out fun fishing trying to kind of look at the day I want to know how all of that uh, information ties together and the time of the catch to me is very important because it's a little bit like playing percentage baseball you know especially if I am preparing for a tournament I want to be able to go back to those areas and how that ties to the moon phase or if they're generating water that day I want to know when those fish were actually most active uh, the length the reason being there and I measure every fish uh, you know a lot of times you you can probably uh, relate to this you hear a lot of guys say that how many keepers they caught well I can promise you if if I say that I've caught a keeper I know because I've measured them I don't want any guesswork uh, when it comes time to especially in a tournament lure uh, color, uh, I want to know, okay, was I throwing a jig on the bottom or was I fishing for suspended fish by throwing a, you know, a fluke or drop shotting or something like that. That helps me go back because remember, in the here and now, as, as your week or your day is unfolding, you'll remember that for a few days. But when you go back and try and, and reference that the following day, if you've been out on the lake for a few days or even in the years to come, you won't remember what in the world that you were doing. So in my humble opinion, Opinion, I think the more information the better and then I'll assign obviously if I save a waypoint and want to hit that spot I'll write down the waypoint number so that that way I can go back into my electronics search by waypoint number and then it'll take me I can bring that up on the map as I'm sitting in my garage putting together kind of a practice plan that type of thing mm -mm. yes you are very uh, let's say meticulous in your, in your <laughs> record keeping <laughs> I love to give you a hard time about that but uh, anyway what do you think is the biggest single advantage to keeping such a thorough journal what, what piece of information do you think serves you the best later on Steve I think it, it undoubtedly it comes back to just the empirical data having that data for future reference because we all know you know if you're out on the lake uh, let's say this weekend and you get to fish Saturday and Sunday it's pretty easy to remember on Sunday what you did on Saturday however where that really comes into play is going to be down the road you know when you need to reference that for instance uh, if I'm fishing a tournament I'll go back because of traveling to different bodies of water I'll go back and even pull information even if it's not the same time of year let's say I'm going there in June and I happen to be there in November I still want to tap into that personal experience that I had and be able to look at okay you know what were the places that I fished were they productive did I you know did I catch the fish because uh, earlier our comments were you know going from if we use winter as the benchmark deep shallow deep shallow you know there is kind of can tell you areas that will typically be holding fish and you've just got to adjust but um, you know the other thing that I use it for specifically much like a kind of an offensive coordinator you know for let's say a, a football team they have that color-coded chart that playbook under this situation or this circumstance they are going to call this play well before a tournament I will actually that night I'll go through and reference my journal during practice and look at the areas okay what times were the fish biting how did I do in those particular areas and then try and formulate a, a milk run to where I'm not spending a lot of time buzzing around the lake and burning gas trying to keep my line in the water so that I can really go out and be 
uh, very efficient. And by doing that, what I think it does is it, it removes all the emotion. It keeps me on my toes, keeps me moving. I don't get married to one spot. I know I have more spots to get to and really focuses in on wanting to go after those reactive uh, fish that are ready to bite at that point in time. So again, just to recap, I think it comes back down to just having that information for future reference. And speaking of information, let's go see what Brian Maloney has to say as we talk to him on how he was able to put together yet another wire-to-wire victory for the BFL All-American title. Let's do it. Now you can order Bass Edge Season 3 on DVD. Own the best resource for tips and techniques in bass fishing as host Aaron Martin tackles lakes across the country with the industry's top pro anglers, including Denny Brower, Boyd Duckett, Randy Howell, and Dave Wolak. This two-disc set includes all 13 episodes. That's over 10 hours of Bass Edge, including interviews, bloopers, and highlights, all for just $19.95. Order online at BassEdge.com. And be sure to check out previously released DVDs like Bass Edge Seasons 1 and 2 and Electronics 101. Bass Edge Season 3, now on DVD at BassEdge.com. Under the lily pads, in a lake near you, live bass happy and free. Until one man with a huge resume and immeasurable experience building the finest rods in the world changed everything. Gary Dobbins offers three full lines of tournament-winning rods. The Champion Extreme, Champion, and Savvy Series. Dobbins Rods, when fishing is more than a hobby. Hi, I'm Moses Mokawahi. I'm Sean Hernke. Hi, I'm Jared Littner. This is Scott Martin, and you're listening to Bass Edge. The path for an amateur to qualify for the Forest Wood Cup is difficult. A series of local events requiring qualification into the regional and national venues. It's a track that really many have tried but few realize. Live from Osage Beach, Missouri, it's the most recent BFL All-American champion with an extra $120,000 in his bank account, and that's Brian Maloney. Welcome to the Edge, Brian. Uh, Thanks, guys. Thanks for the invite. Uh, It's quite an honor to be on Bass Edge today. Hey, you're going to buy lunch today, right? Uh, I'll tell you what, i I got to get down to earth first. <laughs> I'm getting close, but yeah, it's, it's on me. Well, speaking of that, Brian, you know, having known you for quite some time and really, uh, you know, you and I used to fish against one another dating way back in the Ozark Division back in the day. And, uh, you know, first off, congratulations. But also, has it really fully sunk in yet that, you know, you, just like Scott Martin, led the event wire to wire and walked home with the championship? No, I... I you know that the I got a heck of a check. I mean, it was beautiful to see all those zeros, and and the trophy is big and heavy and gorgeous. What I did not realize was the uh, the amount of texts and emails and phone calls, and, and they haven't stopped. And they're coming from from all over, guys that I've run across all over this nation and fishing uh, federations and nationals and stuff. That uh, uh, I wasn't I wasn't ready for that, and. Um, what I kind of realized, it's not about Brian Maloney. It's the fact that, uh, you know, us guys working 8 to 5, Monday through Friday, we, we finally did. We finally got up there at the, that, that big level, and we, we won one. So who knows? Uh, one of these days it might sink in, but right now I'm just in, enjoying the ride. Well, Brian, uh, like Aaron said, we've been talking to Scott about fishing that same Potomac River and, having, and enjoying some success. But I understand that you fished a little bit different part of the river. Tell us about the water you fished and, and how you approached it and, and, and how you decided upon uh, the kinds of fish you'd look for. Sure. Uh, simultaneously, they took the tour and the All-American out of the same harbor, that National Harbor. It's the 495 Bridge, or they call it Woodwell-Wilson Bridge there. Uh, 
that was a dividing point. They they felt like uh, they didn't want either of the tournaments walking on the, the same water as the other one. So they predominantly said, told the All-Americans we had to stay north of the bridge. We were allowed to fish the bridge and stay north or upstream, which is downtown D.C. I mean, uh, <laughs> it's a heck of a venue. It's so unique in itself that, uh, I, like I said, it, what you saw um, when you're fishing around the historical monuments, uh, the traffic, the amount of people walking the shorelines, it was all distractions, but you had to stay focused. When I planned on going up there, uh, I made phone calls. And I, I went ahead and called other Federation people. The president of uh, Virginia, TBF, uh, spoke with him, spoke with other individuals that way. What I found is they don't fish above that bridge very often. And when they do, there's only two or three places that they uh, concentrate on. And one is called the Spoils. It's a it's a bay just north of uh, the bridge that was really the uh, construction site for building this Woodrow Wilson Bridge. They uh, dug out a lot of, uh, used a lot of soil out of there, uh, staged a lot of equipment. So it's kind of like a pothole over there filled with debris, sunken barges, concrete. It's a fish magnet. It gets the fish off the river, and, and they were going there. I was told to go in the Pentagon Pool. Again, another little canal that cuts off the river and, and is the uh, water basin there at the, the steps of the Pentagon, which is just absolutely gorgeous. It's again lets the fish get off the river and get over there and spawn. And uh, then they have a unique situation. Uh, they call it the poop station. It's a sanitation plant for the city that releases <laughs> clear water. I mean, crystal clear water uh, at about 15, 17 foot deep. Their outlets are. Uh, there's a fight to get to that because first guy there, the, the fish uh, stage in the stage in that crystal clear water, and uh, somebody pulls in there, they can uh, get a, a limit extremely fast. One of the unique parts of it is when you go under this bridge, we had a 20 minute idle zone before we were allowed to even break out and even run the boats. And at that, there wasn't but another five miles you could even run a boat, uh, meaning before you had to shut down, idle again. Very unique situation. You had to manage your time uh, because of all the idle zones and, and the bridges. Every bridge you had to shut down an idle under. So it wasn't like you could run and gun a lot. You had to really kind of commit to an area, and that's what I did. I, I, I looked at maps, realized that out of 49 of us and listening to you guys talk, all of us were going to be in the same water uh, playing bumper boats. I took a risk. I thought I'd get away from it all uh, using uh, some Lawrence topos. I mean, in the structure scan, I found some little flats that were uh, up in this Washington Canal. And what that is is basically uh, they cut off the river another canal about 30 foot deep to create a, a protected harbor. And these little um, little flats, I wasn't sure what numbers of fish would be there, but I thought, well, there's a flat, there's deep water, there's ditches. Uh, there's got to be a population of fish there, be it post-spawn, pre-spawn, whatever it is. Let's just see uh, see if it can last three days, and it did. It uh, it worked out great for me. Wow, uh, you know, it sounds like it's a very commercial, industrialized, you know, certainly portion of the river. And you know, Brian, it's no secret that this is your first All-American, and and I found it quite interesting. I didn't realize this until you told me that that you had never fished a tidal system before, and, and you had mentioned that you went against the grain most of the week. What does that mean exactly? Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Well, uh, what I figured is uh, river systems naturally. What I've learned in the past is your fish predominantly stay shallow. Uh, there's, it's, it's hard to get into a river situation that you're going to find deep water fish. 
So um, I knew that flipping shallow presentations was was going to be the dominant pattern. So I kind of, I kind of when I got out there uh, that first day and that first morning and started watching people and looking, those popular spots were getting hammered. I, I think I kind of 17 bolts went into the spoils. Uh, the Pentagon when I pulled in there had they were probably sitting around nine, ten, eleven bolts in in these areas. And I'm talking the spoils. You're not talking about an area, but maybe uh, 400 yards in circumference. Uh, Pentagon probably 200 yard round pool uh so very heavy traffic i noticed also a lot of guys the greens were in brown base were very popular all the little shaky heads uh, uh little worms i decided that okay the pressure was there you could see the pressure on the fish that i was just on back off and uh, get off the banks present something different meaning color i went to dark colors i went to uh black blues uh, uh blue flakes I, I kept it very dark and uh crankbaits everybody was running shallow crankbaits i went deep uh, i threw some deeper bills that could get me down to 16 foot 15 foot uh, like a post 400 or, or thundershed so i also changed it up and everybody was doing a little again the finesse where i uh was picking up uh I started off with a, a hog stumper or hog stump uh, individual around uh, Lake of the Ozarks makes a, a half ounce football head long shank hook that allowed me to to, to put that Garnier uh, slam stick. It's nothing. It's a paddle worm, about five and a half inches long paddle worm on that long shank hook. Uh, and I just worked it real aggressive. Uh, ran out of those uh, football heads uh, because of all the trash on the bottom naturally and. And I was fortunate enough to be carrying the old Jim Dill. He bought Crockett Gator, and he started playing around with roundhead, uh, heavier roundhead, uh, shaky head type baits. Again, long shank, because when you start putting those big bulky baits on, on shaky heads, you're going to need a bigger hook. So, like I said, I, I just wanted more aggressive. I, I thought, no, I'm not going to let the fish try to tease them into fishing. I'm just so. Put it in the front of their face, scare them and shock them and hope they bite, and, and they didn't. Well, Brian, you said about this tournament that you wanted the fish to react to you. Can you tell us what that means, and, and, and how did you accomplish it? Coming off of post-spawn, you know, your fish are, are not going to be real aggressive. For those guys that have, have sight fished, you, you realize that you can aggravate a fish. You can get the fish's instincts to just bite. And to do that, I realized being silent with my baits, uh, no rattles and uh, my crankbaits, speed on my plastics, meaning it just comes upon them. If I hit them at the right angle and at the right speed, it would spook that fish, shock that fish, and their uh, natural instincts would be to bite it. It doesn't mean they're eating, but they will bite something, and, and they bit the bait. <laughs> Believe it or not. Wow. Well, you know, Brian, one of the more popular topics uh, here on the edge is concerning about planning and preparation. It seems like a lot of anglers, you know, want that, that extra edge or that extra step. And I think in this situation, it's extremely applicable just given the fact that, A, you had never been on this body of water, and, B, you had never fished a tidal system. Can you walk us through a little bit more? I know you said you talked with uh, some of the presidents there in uh, of the TBF, but can you tell us a little bit more about your preparation and how you were able to turn that into a place that you had never been to this caliber of a win? Sure. Uh, the disadvantage of being a weekend angler is, is time on the water. We got commitments with family and, and work, so we're not going to be able to pull it off being on the water. So, this is a modern technology is what's getting us there, such as the internet. I mean, uh, I use Google, Bing, uh, MapQuest, three different versions. If you notice, if you pull them up and do satellite pictures, there'll be three different satellite pictures, and that's helped me tremendously because those three different pictures will give you different water levels, different water conditions, and you'll be able to see different uh, type of uh, structure out there. That was one advantage. 
the title system was, uh, in my head, it's just a flood. We Here in the Midwest, every spring we're flooded. we got to figure out where those fish are going when that water's going up. And when they start opening the dams around here in the gates, we got to chase the fish back out and find where they're going. So uh, I was realized up there in a the title system, you got two floods a day and you got dropping water and i just kind of kept my head about myself saying okay these fish are are, are every day we were there uh, we never got to really to get on the water prior to the high tide so we were always fishing a, fa- a falling tide so with the exception maybe of a couple hours at the end of the day where the the tide switched and started to come in so that's basically i just kept my head about myself and used the experience around here in the midwest and, and applied it out there and it worked well, we all know that mental distractions can get you off your game and it sounds like there was a lot going on over there <laughs> steve i'm telling you what uh, just scenery wise it was just uh, amazing washington dc if, if you've never been there uh, the amount of uh, history in the buildings and the structures and statues and and and, and monuments is, is just unbelievable then you apply a downtown metropolitan area with uh, the joggers the bicyclists the walkers along the rails uh, the artist i mean i had a flute a couple of days playing up there and and uh it's just uh, people walking their dogs and this 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 guy watched me for three days with his big old bulldog just staring at me just give me a thumbs up every time i turned around uh I was blessed for two days to have a, a Coast Guard cutter pulled up the port there at Washington, D.C., uh, PD's Marine facilities. Uh, uh, they had a, a, some ceremonies going on, and, and the guys, the sailors, were out there. And, of course, they were giving tours to all the uh, distinguished senators and everything. They were walking all over there. But every time they come uh, on that uh, starboard side of that boat, they were all hooting and hollering every time I would do something. So the distractions were there. I mean, the presidential helicopters were buzzing us nonstop, and I guess because of the Reagan airport, they could only fly so high. And I believe their maximum altitude was like 200 feet. I mean, they just they just ripped and roared by you all day long. So it really made you comfortable because it made you realize you were at a venue, you were blessed to be, uh, to be invited to it. And uh, it was a proud moment. Even if I wasn't catching fish, it was just the, the opportunity was given to me. You just couldn't ask for more. Wow. Well, it certainly makes you appreciate, you know, what we are able to do in this country. And, you know, speaking of, of, of what we're able to do, you, you had mentioned shortly after the tournament was over, I think, and we talked on the, on the way home, Brian, that, you know, it's time to get back to your real job. And I got such a kick out of that because, uh, you know, that's, where the majority of us as anglers are we're working you know a full-time job to pay the bills to be able to go go fishing what advice can you give to aspiring amateurs you know that are wanting to follow in your footsteps but you know still have that career to to pay the bills Uh, be true to yourself sometimes we get wrapped up in fishing the moment and uh what i would tell any amateur is stay focused uh, choose a target two years five years down the road shoot for that when it comes to fishing we all put our pants on the same way one leg at a time uh, we're out there throwing and chunking uh, rods and reels with line on them and tying something on the end of them so to me there is no big secrets uh maybe the only disadvantage a weekend guy has out there is, is the time on the water but you can capitalize on that by practicing in your garage and pitching and flipping in your backyard and and doing research on the internet just looking and google and reading and you know those are the advantages as an amateur we have that maybe a pro doesn't get to because he's continuously wrapped up in interviews and managing his business so as an amateur just 
keep a level head about yourself. Don't get wrapped up in uh, that angler next to you is, is better than you because you're not competing against them. Realize that you're going after that little green thing with a side, you know, a brain the size of a pea. And the, the sport of fishing, uh, there is no other competition like ours where the playing field changes every day, every hour. Uh, so just be yourself. That's what I tell amateur. Just be yourself. Fish your strengths. Don't don't chase doc talk, and uh, things will work out. Wow, that's not only great fishing advice, Brian. That's that's just great life advice. And certainly appreciate uh, you spending time with us here on the Edge today. Full of information, and uh, just want to wish you best of luck in the upcoming. Forest Wood Cup that's coming up. So it uh, looks like you've got a little more preparation to kind of squeeze in. Yeah, I do. I, and uh, I tell you what, uh, the Lou's, the people down at Lou's are, are really getting on board with me and really backing me. And, and uh, I can't thank Jim Lovin and uh, Lynn Reeves and them enough. Uh, Rangers coming around, uh, Jason Parsons and all those guys down at Ranger. That is a family down there. And, and it's just absolutely amazing what has happened in my life. It, it did change my life, and uh, I have plans on uh, making everybody happy. I'm gonna, I'll make everybody proud down there, so here we go. Well, thanks so much, Brian. Look forward to the future. We'll see you, Brian. Thank you, Aaron. Thanks, Steve. Why did they consistently win? Why did they know about all the latest and greatest baits? BassTackleDepot.com, of course. BassTackleDepot.com is your headquarters for all your bass fishing needs. With over 100 different manufacturers in stock, including Dobbins Rods, Bassaholics Clothing, Boat Bling Cleaning Products, Black Dog, Pepper Baits, Gene LaRue, Jackalure Company, McCoy Line, not to mention a talented staff of hardcore anglers ready to assist your every need. It's no wonder Bass Tackle Depot is where the pros shop. You know the importance of protecting your investments. So why use anything other than the toughest keel protector for your boat? Grinding sand, abrasive rocks, and concrete ramps are no match for our patented technology. Keel Guard keel protectors are made tough and made to stick. Their do-it-yourself installation takes less than an hour, providing the most dependable, most trusted keel protection for your boat, guaranteed for life. So give your boat the performance edge. Put on the protection the pros pick. Keel Guard keel protectors. Wow, what a good interview from Brian, and always good to hear uh, another one of our Ozark boys making it big. Absolutely, and you know, I, I take kind of note to a lot of the things that he said, Steve. You know, I can I can remember back in my day of starting out kind of at the club level. To it was a small town club. I think there was like fourteen or fifteen people that was in it. You know, again, actually, we held most of our tournaments at night uh, back in the day. But uh, Brian is somebody who has came up through the Federation ranks, you know, stuck with it. That is not, as you well know, that is not an easy road uh, to get to where where he is and now to be qualified into the FLW Cup. But, you know, just kind of a, a piece of advice for especially our younger people. And when I say younger people, I'm talking young in the sport. You know, if you have access to a bass club, uh, to just a local chapter, man, get involved because it not only teaches you so much about fishing, but also just about conservation and kind of a, a community of getting, being able to see, you know, how these guys are able to put uh, the winning weights and, and winning stringers together. Well, that's so true. And, and it's just a lot of fun. I mean, you, you make friends in these clubs and, and the club tournaments are a lot of fun and uh, sort of a low pressure way to fish for, you know, 
guys that plan to down the road to fish in some of the big big tournaments. But you know, fishing's like anything else in life. The more you do it, the better you get at it. So go a lot. And even on those days when you when things don't go right and you you don't catch them, uh, you still learn something. Absolutely, Steve. And you know what else? It's something to record in your journal. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, Aaron, I store it right up here. You know, my mind is like a steel trap. <laughs> yeah, like a uh, tin man on Dorothy, always closed and a little rusty, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's wrong. That's just wrong. You talk to me, but I guess I have it coming because I tease you too much. Uh, well, you know, I'm, I'm sorry to hurt your sensitive feelings, but uh, you have a month to get over it because our time, unfortunately, Steve, is up and uh, we need to, to kind of bring this to a close. But before we do, just want to throw out a couple of quick reminders. Don't forget that you can go directly to BassTackleDepot.com. At checkout, enter in the BE special, and you will receive 15% off your entire purchase. Also, mm. remember to check out the newest Bass Edge 3 DVD that's right there on the home page of BassEdge.com. If you have a chance and have an opportunity and feel so inclined, uh, feel free to, to add us uh, on your comments there on iTunes. And also, be sure to friend us on Facebook, as that is where we keep all things Bass Edge kind of updated and moving forward. In the meantime, I am Aaron Martin, and for Steve Brigman, enjoy your week, everybody, and best of luck both on and off the water. The Edge is presented by Kill Guard Kill Protector. For more information on Bass Edge or to shop at the Bass Edge online store, visit www.bassedge.com. And be sure to be with Steve Brigman and Aaron Martin right here on another episode of The Edge. Brought to you in part by Legend Boats, BassTackleDepot.com, PowerPole, Dobbins Rods, Mercury Outboards, and Rapaholic.com.